Welcome, listeners, to the Editor's Desk, our regular podcast here at First Things. I'm Rusty Reno. I'm in New York, and I'm at the Editor's Desk. And I have with me Nigel Bigger, Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at Oxford, uh, to talk about his article in the October issue of First Things, A Christian Defense of American Empire. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rusty. I'm very glad to be here. I should also mention that Nigel is the author. He 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 loves um, he loves the provocative titles, as in <laughs> a book in defense of war, uh, another book, what's wrong with rights, and then uh, a book very relevant to which I found very helpful, less provocative in its title, but very relevant to our discussion between kin and cosmopolis and ethic of the nation. So, um, well, let's, let's jump in here. I mean, I guess the, for why the E word when it comes to the United States in, a, in our present projection of power across the world? Well, Rusty, uh, given um, the history of the United States and your origins, um, I speak here as a, as a Briton, not an American, although I'm married to an American. Given your history, um, I have no difficulty at all understanding why the E word is, is uh, <laughs> something that Americans uh, tend uh, uh, instinctively to um, uh, be suspicious of, and uh, most Americans um, think of America as being, in its origins, uh, anti-imperial. Uh, and I'm sure your listeners don't need explaining why? Because, of course, you uh, you were created in a reaction against British Empire. Um, so, the, the, although the, although you do give a very, I think, powerful and detailed <laughs> explanation of why our purported anti-imperialism is really not as pure as we would like to think it is. No, it's it's it's, it's not that simple, is it? I mean, on the on the one hand, what I what I say is that. First of all, British imperialism uh, wasn't quite as imperialist as you supposed because uh, in the late 1700s, uh, 1763 or thereabouts, uh, the, the British um, uh, established religious toleration in Quebec for Catholics, mainly uh, to, to uh, attract the loyalty of, of French-speaking Catholics to the, the new British Empire in, in North America. Uh, but of course, that upset uh, Protestant colonists. Uh, but th there, ironically, you have, you have the empire is, as it were, for political reasons, no doubt, uh, establishing religious liberty. <laughs> but the <laughs> colonists don't like it. And then um, um, around the same time, I think, after the French and Indian Wars, um, um, the, the British... Uh, made a treaty with with the Native Americans um, and pledged that they would stop colonists invading Indian lands west of the Appalachians, and they stationed ten thousand redcoats along the Appalachians to, to stop it. They weren't terribly successful, but uh, uh, as you'll know, uh, American colonists resented that enormously. So the irony there is that the 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 colonists, uh, the 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 early Americans, resented um, imperial constraints on their own uh, desire to go westward and create their own 
uh, set of colonies or, or, or their own empire. So there are there are ironies in in the American war against against Britain. Why is empire the word the e word? Why is it in such bad odor? Or or well, when did it when did when did it go from a a praise word to a to a a curse word, and then and then yeah, I'm just yes. trying to help people think about that because that's really, as you say, it's it's in your parents' lifetime that there, yeah. it went from a praise word to a a negative word. Yeah, so I mean, Rusty, um, one thing I've been doing here in Oxford since 2017 is running a. Um, a research project called Ethics and Empire, and we, we look at empire from ancient China to the modern period, uh, considering how people um, at the time viewed the empires in which they they lived. And one uh, surprising result is that it seems that it wasn't until um, the modern period, and I'm talking late 19th century, that empire became empire as a political form became a um, a suspect entity as such. So you know if you if you want to find ancient Chinese or medieval Muslims uh, railing against empire as such, you won't find it. You will find discussions of what makes uh, a good and a bad, a virtuous and a vicious emperor ruler. Mm-hmm. But but empire as such really was was a, was completely unremarkable because it was so common. So what happened in, in, in modern times in the 20th century? I think um, partly the, the triumph of uh, liberal views, namely of, of the rights of people uh, to, to rule themselves. And of course, Woodrow Wilson, the US president during the First World War and at the end of it, um, promoted that principle at the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, so that was certainly one of the the, the causes, but I think more recently, um, in since since, well, certainly in the last ten years, probably twenty years, um, there's grown up a um, a suddenly in in universities, post-colonial theory takes a radically cynical view of uh, European empires. And more recently, that's begun begun to affect um, the um, the study of history in in universities. So right now, whereas a previous generation was was more balanced in their assessment of 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 empire, a current generation uh, adopts a, a basically cynical view of it. There were, as I recall, in late nineteenth and early twentieth century Britain. There was a criticism of empire as that it corrupted, um, it corrupted, you know, English democracy. So there was a there was a fear yes. that, and I think that here in the United States, that's a there is a, a strong current on the right. There's a faction on the right that thinks that the United, the American empire, the current American empire, is uh, undermines uh, our our liberal democratic culture. How can you explain to me how does that work? How does the argument work? I mean, how is empire supposed to corrupt democratic culture? It, it, uh, it. I think in here the idea here is that so Wall Street, Hollywood, Silicon Valley are 
industries of the empire, that is to say they're globalized industries, and that over time, therefore, the most powerful and richest people have an interest in in the empire, not in the, if you will, the host country or the, uh, so that they abandon their loyalty to middle-class Americans and transfer their loyalty to, to the sustaining the empire. And then the United States military becomes an agent of their projects and oh, not see. the national projects strictly understood. I mean, as I see, it wasn't that GK Chesterton and his crowd, they, they were anti-imperial, I think, for reasons that were probably different in detail, but in broad strokes, very similar. Well, the, the, the um, complaint that empire corrupts domestic democracy actually goes back, back to Edmund Burke in the 1780s. Um, I think the complaint there was that British people who'd gone out to India and made themselves fabulously wealthy came back to London and... Um, uh, were using their wealth to 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 through patronage to corrupt uh, parliamentary uh, democracy. Uh, so the the arguments the argument that that empire corrupts I guess it probably goes way back actually to ancient times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so the complaint that the the empire is corrupting the republic. Yeah, way back. Uh, so, uh, but your point about the post-colonial studies there. I guess I look, I, you have much more experience. I've been out of academia for now a dozen years uh, that it, it's a very hard to get your finger on what it is that that's the problem here. Uh, is it a kind of utopianism that um, there, there should never be an imperator, there should never be a ruling power? It's a kind of quasi-anarchist view about the human condition. But other other times it's okay for Aztecs to have an empire, but it's bad for the French too. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, 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 the post-colonialists have no interest in um, non-European empires, which is, is ironic. Um, their obsession is with European empires. And, and post-colonialists usually are not students of history. They're students of literature. And although the post-colonial studies has begun to infect other parts of the humanities, um, and the, the patriarch of, of post-colonial studies is Edward Said, the uh, Palestinian-born, American-based uh, um, student uh, scholar of literature. And his complaint was the way in which he thinks um, Western literature patronizes, uh, distorts, uh, um, um, uh, derogates um, um, non-Western culture. So it was basically a cultural critique uh, and had a lot to do, I think, with a sense of cultural humiliation in the face of the dominance of the West. And you know, uh, uh, to give him and post-colonialists some credit, um, one can understand that. Uh, if you are a, a people dominated by a foreign culture, um, uh, you can resent it. Actually, Rusty, I remember when I was uh, in my... Um, not quite in my teens, in the 19, late 50s and early 60s, um, there was in Britain a resentment of America because we, I, remembered, we remembered when we ruled the world. It wasn't long ago. And oh, yeah. Had, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, vis yeah. I visited England uh, with my family when I was 11 in 1971, and we visited some family friends, and I went to school with their 11-year-old. And in one of the classes... I was aware that I was being, I was being derogated by the teacher 
who I think really resented exactly that sentiment that you just described. It's this, he, this, this smug, you know, American who needs to be yeah. sort of put in his place. Um, I kind of came away at age 11. You don't always know how to interpret those experiences, but I, I was just aware that I was just, I had just been the subject of a great deal of resentment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's, it's sheer jealousy. Um, I, I think now I, I'm pretty confident we, we British have got over that now, uh, but no one likes to be overshadowed. And uh, so you can understand uh, um, uh, people who have dominated resenting the domination, uh, but some people, some dominated peoples are more mature than others and they recognize that the dominating power has good things to give. Um, and and they, some people are capable of taking what's been given discriminately and not merely swallowing it, but adapting it. And that, that's always been the case um, with empires. You have a significant section in the piece rebutting New Testament scholars, especially Richard Horsley. I think you focus in on him, or at least some of the books that he's edited. Uh, that, that it's an argument that that the New Testament is anti-empire. Yes, it's a. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I remember those days. I would go to the AARSBL, the American Academy of Religion Society of Biblical Literature, and I think there were multiple sections on empire. It was a. It was a kind of a thing in the nineties and aughts. Yes, yes. I think the, the noughts, I think it was a lot of a flurry of uh, biblical scholars decided to um, um, make biblical studies relevant uh, by, <laughs> by, by reacting against George uh, W. Bush. Um, well, I think it might predate that in, in post-Vietnam. Uh, uh, yes. So I think they, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sure, as I, my recollection of it is that, uh, you know, there was a, there was in the 70s and into the 80s a, and then Reagan's, um, evil empire, there was all this hand-wringing in academia about how uh, he was going to precipitate nuclear holocaust and yes. America had to had to not have imperial ambitions. You know, I read, I, I co-taught a course with a classicist, and I read for the first time when I was 40 years old, uh, Virgil's Aeneid, and I, I, was, I was just absolutely ravished. And I said, why was this not taught to me? And I realized I went to university in the late 70s for these, you know, intro Western Civ class, and the Aeneid had been pushed out because it's a justification of empire. And it was a post-Vietnam uh, sentiment that young people should not be encouraged to think about empire <laughs> in a positive wow. light. <laughs> That's interesting. Because it, it, so I think it, it way back then. Yeah. So I think it feeds back, and, it feed, and certainly the Bush... Um, the Bush presidency would o only have encouraged that sentiment. Yeah. Um, but you, you, you observe that, and I, I find this, I mean, St. Paul, Romans 13, um, uh, you know, the emperor, you know, wield, uh, the magistrate wields wield the sword uh, according by the will of God. Uh, Jesus, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, Caesar's. There's, you really have to squeeze hard on the New Testament to get it to be anti-empire. Seems like it's a, not a relevant question, if you will. What I, I think that think that's right. Um, um, I mean, I think it's clear from the 
the story of uh, the, the stories in the Gospels of uh, Jesus uh, arrest and passion that the guilty parties, according to the stories, uh, are the Jewish religious authorities who whip up the mob. <laughs> um, I mean, Pilate, the Roman governor, um, his fault is to be too weak, not too strong. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so he's he's swayed for political reasons. But as it were, it wasn't the Romans what did, what did it. Um, they allowed it to happen, but the the motive force were, were not were not the imperialists. And then, um, yes, it is striking in in the Gospels, um, um, Gentiles, in whom Jesus recognizes the true faith, uh, on at least one or two occasions, are Roman centurions. Yeah. Uh, and then with Paul, you've got, yes, Romans 13. Paul was also rescued from the hands of a Jewish mob in Jerusalem by Roman troops. Um, wasn't it, what, what wasn't, when he came before the Roman governor, Festus, didn't he get a rather sympathetic hearing? And then he appealed. Well, then he appeals to his Roman citizenship. Exactly. So I think it's... The judge is very anxious. Nobody told me he was a Roman citizen. (laughs) He was very concerned that, uh, you know, that he would be, uh, have done something uh, fundamentally wrong by not respecting the rights of a Roman citizen. But I think if you look at the biblical canon as a whole, of course, you've got the the revelation to St. John at the end, uh, which comes down hard on, on Rome as Babylon. So there is a judgment of a particular empire at a particular period. So and and you can find lots of um, Old Testament prophetic railings against uh, the the inhuman empires of the of the of the Near East, uh, and yet of course it's the emperor, uh, what was his name, the Persian emperor who who allowed the Jewish exiles. Cyrus. To, Cyrus. Yeah. yeah. So so there, Cyrus um, is an instrument of God. Uh, so so what you can't find and you can find criticism of of um, inhuman uh, um, domination. Um, but in a sense, the fact that it's imperial is neither here nor there. And of course, under, under David and Solomon, Israel had its own mini empire. <laughs> the, you know, my, by my reading, Christianity does not have a regime. That is to say, there's no form of government, form of rule that is, uh, is required. Uh, Christianity distinguishes between good regimes and bad regimes, just and unjust. But monarchy, empire, democracy, oligarchy, arist- aristocracy. Yes. Um, I don't. I, and the Catholic Church has if, uh, officially teaches that uh, that the Church doesn't favor any one particular regime. Um, a lot of people misinterpret the Second Vatican Council because it has good things to say about democracy. But I yes. think that actually perfects that teaching by because after the French Revolution, there I think was a false teaching that Christianity is incompatible with liberal democracy. Yes, uh, and then so Vatican II says no, Christianity can be compatible with liberal democracy, just as it can be compatible with many other forms of government. I think that's right. Um, uh, Christianity does establish a, a general principle. I think that um, uh, political rule should be. For the good of the people as a whole and uh, that means that if political rule is to be uh, benevolent and just uh, it needs to know what the people need and therefore i think what that requires in terms of political structures is there needs to be some way in which those at the top 
are in touch with those at the bottom and responsive to them. Uh, and democracy is one way of doing that. And we might think it is all things considered the best way. Um, but there are other ways of doing that too. And, and uh, I'm perfectly confident that sufficient justice, political justice did not hit the earth, first of all, um, in the nascent uh, democracy of America in the early 1800s. I've, I've come to see that the Lockean principle of consent of the governed you know, that part of the social contract is to generate that consent, that the English common law tradition is, uh, is, a, is a consent of the governed. It's a, holding a, it's a holding those above accountable to what, to what the people say and do, what, yes. what their common practices are. And, and so it's a, it's a kind of uh, democratic constraint on, on the powerful. That's, that's right. And I think, I think the fact is that, uh, um, well, most rulers have to be responsive to some extent because um, if they don't, they, they, they risk rebellion and overthrow. Uh, now, of course, it's, as we know, it is possible for some regimes to be... Uh, they can hang on for a long time and do a lot of damage. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, let's pivot to global realities in the 21st century. Uh, as you... As you um, outlining your paper, you use the American empire. It's just a matter of fact that the United States is the, is the global hegemon, not all powerful, but, uh, but, but the first, you know, at the top of the heap, so to speak. That's right. And I, I, um, um, I'm a Christian realist and I think that, um, asymmetries or inequalities of power internationally have always been a fact of life and will be a fact of life. Um, some states will come to dominate. Um, Britain did for a couple hundred years. We don't now. Uh, America does. And the task for all dominant powers is to use their power well. Uh, and of, of course, as we've, as we've discussed, um, uh, Rusty, um, having dominant power uh, exposes you to all sorts of temptations, to, to hubris and overreach, and arguably uh, the U.S. has suffered from that since 1990. Uh, on some occasions, it, it thought it could do everything and it couldn't, and it's, it's discovered what its limitations are. Um, um, but the lesson one should draw from that is not to withdraw from the world, because frankly, you can't. Because if you don't dominate, someone else is going to, and uh, they will create an environment hostile to you and you will suffer. Uh, so someone has to dominate and the, um, the task then is to dominate well rather than badly. You focus on China. I mean, not focus, but the, uh, the China looms large as mm -hmm. you describe the, the, the global realities. Um, what are your misgivings there? Or what are your concerns there? that so the United States has to, it has to block or contain Chinese ambitions. Yes, well, you know, first of all, um, the, the main concern is the nature of the regime in China. It's not just that it's, uh, it's, not, it's not really communist, it's simply um, somewhere between authoritarian and totalitarian, and it's suppression of, um, of, of, freedoms in Hong Kong, 
and its um, abandonment of, of the rule of law in Hong Kong is a sign of the kind of regime it is. And I, I wouldn't want to live under it, nor have my children, if I had any, to live under it. And plenty of ethnically Chinese people don't want to live under it. Uh, we have about, I think, 80,000 of them, or 140,000 of them have come to the UK because of what's gone on in Hong Kong. So it, the nature of the regime is not a desirable one. And it's also become aggressively nationalist. And uh, um, um, uh, lest one be inclined to interpret uh, the struggle as simply one between the American empire and the Chinese empire, it's not that simple because there are lots of peoples in Southeast Asia who, who do not like the growing dominance of China and they're looking for friends. And uh, uh, America is obviously the most powerful friend. Uh, Britain is a less powerful friend, but we're doing what we can to uh, develop uh, relationships with um, Australia and Singapore and other Southeast Asian nations. So um, uh, this is not a matter of America doing things alone because uh, most empires don't do things alone. The British Empire certainly uh, uh, seldom did that. When we went to war, we normally went to war with allies. Um, uh, so it's not a matter of simply of hoisting American empire on the rest of the world. Some of the rest of the world actually wants American empire to stay around and help defend it against um, uh, an aggressive totalitarian uh, nationalist Chinese empire. I think we saw this after in February um, or last spring. I mean, my travels in Europe indicated a kind of, you know, frustration with American demands of more military spending. And there was a bit of an end of history sentiment, uh, belief in soft power, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, boy, I tell you, after Putin's invasion of Ukraine, it seemed like our NATO allies have definitely decided that they want the American empire. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that, yes, they, they, they wishful thinking that we were post-heroic, to use Habermas's uh, phrase, or hmm. post-war um, has been blown out of the water. And I think uh, Germany, of course, is the uh, the dominant European power here. And Germany, for reasons that don't need explaining, ha it has been very ambivalent about the use of military force, particularly outside of its own borders. We all understand that. Um, uh, but uh, yes, the invasion of Ukraine has been a wake-up call to, to Europe. Um, and it will be much harder for European countries to resist pressure uh, to raise their spending if they're part of NATO. I think the, the goal is 2% of GDP to be spent on, on uh, defence. Um, last time I looked, Germany wasn't anywhere near that. I imagine it will become near that in future. And of course, uh, the Nordic countries, Norway, Sweden, Finland, um, 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 Finland and Sweden have both applied to join NATO. So, um, yes, the thanks to, to Vladimir Putin, we all now remember what NATO was for. And sadly, uh, NATO still has a role. I think we're in the United States uh, heading towards increased military spending also. Um, one of the effects of the Trump presidency was to uh, force a new consensus about China. I think there was, you know, the Obama administration, <coughs> they had to pivot to China. But um, I think 
in in I can imagine the meetings in the White House that for every concrete proposal there was a there were counter objections and well, this and that. So nothing really happened. But I think during the Trump administration, um, the elite consensus in America has shifted, and we're aware that we have to we have to strengthen ourselves vis-a-vis China. So it's an interesting time in that regard. Um, yeah. So I think. Um... I think one can have some sympathy for the appeasers. Uh, I mean, um, would that Vladimir Putin had, d- had not done what he did. And we all wished that he wasn't going to do it, hoped he wouldn't do it. And, and would that China wasn't rattling its saber the way it is, uh, because uh, it makes, uh, uh, um, had they not done those things, were they, were they not of that kind, then the world would be a happier, more peaceful and wealthier place. So. It's it's right to to hope for the best, um, and people in in nineteen thirties in Britain, um, the appeasers, you know, mindful of the dreadful First World War, uh, were very reluctant for reasons we understand, uh, not to see it repeated. But there comes a time when you have to recognise the signs, and uh, I think for um, about twelve months before the Ukraine. Uh, invasion happened, uh, the security services of this country were coming to the view that it was going to happen. So so now everyone's seen it happen. Um, um, I, I'm glad that policy is adjusting, as sadly it has to. Well, it's certainly my hope that in the United States, we can, uh, I mean, a Christian realist, uh, you know, that one of the principles of just war is probability of success. And uh, w- one of the concerns I have is that our, our relatively successful empire since the end of World War II, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, that this success can create the false uh, impression in our leadership class that they really can do anything. Yes, um, yes. Rather than being, recognizing that, uh, and we'll see with this winter with, I mean, the super sanctions against Russia may have turned may turn out to have been a a misstep on the part of the West um, to engage in economic warfare that you can't win. Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, I hope it's not true. I mean, the, the latest reports are that uh, Russia is still making a lot of money out of Europeans who have to buy Russian gas. Uh, um, but you know, longer term, I, I mean the market for Russian energy in Europe is dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. who, who, who is going to buy it in future? Now, Putin boasts he can find alternative markets well. Um, um, countries around the world have observed what's happened. And I would imagine countries around the world uh, uh, would not want to put themselves in such a dependent position as much of Europe has done. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, I think in terms of of um, spending more money on arms, uh, I think it has to be done because I think certainly Putin's career, you know, since um, Syria and Crimea, now Ukraine, shows us that. Um, uh, I, I mean, during a period when when the West showed itself reluctant to act, and and you know, remember when chemical weapons were used in Syria. Mm, um, yes. My, my government blinked, the UK government blinked, and Obama blinked, and effectively got away with it. 
and when he seized Ukraine, uh, Crimea, uh, you know, we reacted, but it was kind of no one really wanted to do anything serious. And uh, uh, I think it's reasonable to suppose he got the view that basically uh, the West was too scared. And so he'd, he'd just uh, take over Ukraine. Um, looking back, uh, if we had been stronger earlier, and this is always the lesson, isn't it? Yes. If we'd been stronger earlier, uh, we, w- we could have deterred uh, Putin from taking this risk. And I suppose uh, that's, that's really why um, um, making sure Putin does not win in Ukraine. Now, we can, t- we can debate what not winning in Ukraine means, but uh, um, it's important that, that Putin demonstrably fails in Ukraine, among other reasons, uh, to be a warning to Beijing. Yes, I agree. I was very heartened that the Blitzkrieg didn't succeed. Yes. And that I think Chairman Xi is no doubt was taking notes and recognizing that it's it's actually uh, very costly to try to take a country, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> especially when when the West has its its might behind the country that you're trying to take over. Um, yes, I, I agree. Well, one also, I, I think that there are another, there's another parallel to the 1930s, and that's a, uh, a sentiment or, a, or a, a judgment that liberal democracies are decadent and ultimately weak. And I, I, I think Osama bin Laden had that view, um, and uh, certainly, you know, there were many intellectuals who had that view, that view in the 1930s. It's resurfaced again, I think, actually. Um, in our time. And uh, I think that's a, it just misjudges the human character. Uh, where, you know, it's not the case that people who devote their lives to commercial life are merely commercial animals, so to speak. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and any more than, you know, uh, people in non-liberal democratic regimes don't care about freedom. Uh, they do, often in a different way. So, um, but I share your hope. I share your hope that, uh, that we can um, achieve an outcome in Ukraine that, I mean, I certainly hope for the Ukrainian people that a peace can be forged, but that it's, that the whole adventure is costly enough and obviously costly enough to Moscow that it's seen as a, as a strategic defeat, even if there are some provinces that he winds up securing. Yes, yeah, so I, I think, um... You know, for Americans looking on at this, I mean, Ukraine's a long way from 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 the Midwest. I mean, I was in San Francisco in April, and there were a few uh, Ukrainian flags around. But I think to myself, <laughs> San Francisco's the other side of the world from Ukraine. Um, uh, so it's it's a distant place, uh, and American taxpayers are paying good money to send weapons there. Um, so the American interest is a, is a remote one, but it is it's a real interest because, um, as I say. Um, uh, uh, domestic security depends on um, a relative, relatively benign environment and um, not to resist uh, Putin. And America is the, the main provider of resources for the resistance. Britain is the second main one, I think. Not to resist uh, will result in due course in an increasingly hostile environment for America. So Americans do have an interest, even though it's it's not an immediate one. I... I hold the view that we've overextended our empire in the post-Cold War era and we need to adjust it uh, 
just as the Romans uh, adjusted their borders to more defensible positions. They're not hard borders. I mean, they're, uh, the American empire is a different beast than, than, than uh, other styles of advance, a kind of commercial, uh, economic, as well as a military empire. But be that as it may, uh, as I've warned, my, many of my friends agree with me about we've overextended, but I've warned them that um, you don't want hasty retreats because no. hasty retreats are an invitation to your adversary to press further. Yes, and, and they, of course, they, the most recent um, dramatic hasty retreat was from, from Kabul, wasn't it? And my uh, friends of mine who work in the um, intelligence and foreign services here were lamenting above all uh, how that um, precipitate, desperate uh, uh, abandonment of Afghanistan undermined the confidence of allies. I agree. I agree. Uh, yes. And hence the the good news that that didn't happen again in Kiev. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. well, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. And, and uh, I share with you the hope that uh, uh, the leaders of the United States steward, steward our empire wisely in the years to come. Amen. <laughs> Thank you.